um, but it's quite long. Uh, but if you get time, do it. Read the chapter because it's really, really good. Um, but I'm going to read from verses 11 to 19, and we're going to be looking this morning at a prayer. But a prayer that is the greatest prayer that was ever prayed. It's the prayer of Christ to his Father. Somewhere um, from the upper room to Gethsemane, somewhere in there, this prayer happens. We find such richness, such beauty within this passage. Things that, that are so applicable, that are so helpful, that are so good for us. So we're going to open, let's read uh, verses 11 to 19, and it reads this. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Whilst I was with you, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are, not, uh, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, would you still our hearts? Would you open our hearts now, Lord? Would you speak to each and every one of us through the most powerful thing that there is, your word? Amen. I want to start off by telling you a story. I'm not sure how much, I'm not sure how helpful an illustration it is, but it's really, really funny. Victoria told me it yesterday, so I thought I wanted to share it with you anyway. One of Victoria's friends, when she was a little child, had a pet goldfish. I say little child, we're talking like three or four. And she was devastated to wake up one morning to find that it was sleeping upside down. So mum said, don't worry about it, because what you do is you flush it down the toilet and it'll be all better by tomorrow. So lo and behold, fish goes down the toilet. Little girl wakes up next morning. There is a new, not new, but upgraded, the, the same thing apparently. The goldfish is back. Fast forward a few months. Same little girl gets a little bit fed up of her guinea pig. And applying the same logic, she flushed the poor guinea pig down the toilet. I don't think she got a new one after that. Um, but I thought it was quite interesting that it was a reaction to something that our mum had said. As children, what do we do? We take what our parents say as truth. Sometimes with not very good effect. Sometimes when the truth isn't helpful, it's really not helpful at this. But today's passage, what we're going to speak about today is the truth and the application of the truth. But also more importantly, what does Jesus view truth as? Today is based on truth, not useless lies about flushing animals down the toilet. I want to focus on this passage. We could have looked at anything within this chapter because there is so much in there. Um, but these verses are all about the word of truth, the word of life, the word that gives 
life. And you know, I find it constantly baffling. This week especially, as I've sat down to read this, is just the way that 2,000-year-old scripture just pierces straight through you. That it just cuts right into the middle of what I believe. It cuts right into the middle of what I think. It stops me dead in my track. It corrects me. It rebukes me. It teaches me. It does so much. And is it not utterly, utterly incredible? These words that we read this morning are words that are spoken by Christ. Spoken by Christ to the Father. As we said already that this is before the betrayal, before the arrest of Christ. So this is somewhere between the upper room and Gethsemane. And what's so evident in this prayer, what's so evident in this chapter, is that Christ is the victor and not the victim. Despite what he is about to go and face. There's four things in this that I think Christ prays for. He prays for our protection. He prays for the protection of the disciples. He prays for their unity. He prays that they would find delight in Christ. And he prays that they would find dedication to the word. And I just want to explore these four things this morning. The first one we'll dive into. We find in verses 11 and 12, this prayer for protection. It says this, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which, I, uh, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 11 there, I am coming to you. That gives us our purpose for this prayer this morning. That gives us the reason why Jesus has said what he said. Sorry, I should have made that a little bit bigger. If you can't see that, sorry. Um, But Jesus is doing this because he is on his way to be with the Father. His prayer for the disciples, this was something of urgency. This was something of necessity. Something that was important to be done now. Because the end was near for Christ. He knew that his betrayal was just round the corner. I think it's interesting as well that Jesus uses the name Holy Father in here. This is the only time that we see Christ call his Father Holy Father. And this declares something of the awesomeness, the splendor, the holiness, but yet also the intimacy. The intimacy that Christ enjoys with the Father. And it shows us, it reflects something of what Christ's attitude is towards the Father. Have you ever heard somebody say, I don't mind Jesus, but I hate God? I've known a few of those people. They're like, Jesus, good guy. Good guy, but God, no. There's too much bad stuff goes on in the world. I can't deal with God. But Jesus, cool guy, we can go with that. Well, Jesus in this completely disagrees. (coughs) Jesus is so close to fulfilling his purpose on earth that he calls out to his Father. And in that Christ felt such need to address the Father with such reverence and with such awe. Because he does, so should we. Protection. Christ's protection, if he protected his disciples when he was here on earth, he says, I kept them in your name. Keep them in your name. I have guarded them. Christ protected his disciples. And he begs his father in this to do the same when he leaves earth. What do we mean by protection? We know it's not circumstantial protection. 
We know that he's not praying that they wouldn't suffer, that they wouldn't face difficulties. In verse 15, Jesus says, don't take them out of the world. Don't section them. Don't put them over here. Don't keep them away from the danger. Don't protect them in that sense. But he's saying, keep them from moral corruption. If it was circumstantial that he was praying for, if he was praying for the people not to face the difficulties, well, the prayer failed. And that's why it didn't mean that. 11 of our 12 apostles killed for their faith. Shows us, proves to us, that this prayer of protection isn't that we wouldn't face difficulties, but rather this prayer is that the Father would keep us from the evil one, that he would keep us from the temptation, that he would keep us with him, and Christ guarded them, except the son of destruction, who of course was Judas Iscariot. So the first thing this morning is Christ protected his disciples, just as today the Spirit protects us. And the beauty of this is that our safety and that our protection depends on the nature of God. It depends on who God is and not on us. If it depended on us, we would all be in so much trouble. And it's incredible that, that Jesus, with the human limitations that he put on himself when he was on earth, that he was able to protect his followers. So how much more can our God in heaven who sits on his throne protect us now? Our security rests in two things. It rests in the fact that we are a gift from the Father to the Son. Would the Father give the Son a gift that was faulty? Would the Father give a gift that wouldn't last? No. The disciples at the beginning belonged to the Father through creation, through their covenant as Jews. But now they belonged to Christ. How precious is that? How wonderful is that? The gift that we are from the Father to the Son. We talk about having self-confidence. What more self-confidence could you want than that? That you are, if you are in Christ, a gift from the Father to the Son. Whenever we feel distant from God, whenever we feel that his love is so far away, just remember that. Remember that you are a gift from the Father to the Son, sealed with the Holy Spirit. The second reason that our safety rests in him is because of our purpose. Because our purpose is to glorify God. And it's absolutely incredible that with all the faults and the failures, the disciples still receive the word of commendation that they get in verse 1. I am glorified in them. The disciples messed up a lot. How many stories do we have of them doing things wrong? But what this tells us is through the sin and through the mess of life, in the disciples, through their denial, through their struggles, through their doubts, through their wrongdoings, God was glorified in them. How utterly incredible is that? That these broken, that these sinful people, that there were little glimpses of Christ inside, Christ was glorified within them. How reassuring is that? That in our struggles, that in our denial, that in our sin, that in our wrongdoings, we can still glorify Christ. Why? Because the same God that was glorified in the apostles is glorified in us. 
Why? Because it brings glory to God. What God starts, God will finish. Those God brings into relationship with himself, he seals. Yes, things will be difficult. Yes, there will be difficult situations. Yes, there will be circumstances we would rather not face. Yes, there will be trials. Yes, there will be temptations that at the time can send us to the very edge of who we are. But it tells us that in Christ there is safety. That in Christ there is refuge. That in Christ there is a security that will be found nowhere, nowhere else. It's always an interesting bit in this verse when it refers to Judas as the son of destruction. And it leads us to the question, was Judas a believer as one of the followers of Jesus there? Is, G- is Judas the example of a man who's lost his salvation? No. He's the example of an unbeliever who pretended to have salvation but was exposed as a fraud. So we're told in John 10, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. It says. There's another image that I want to bring into this point that we find in verse 11. And it says that they may be one even as we are one. This call to unity. We serve a God that is united. We serve a triune God. Three persons perfectly, perfectly connected and interlinked in a way that we will never quite fathom. In a way that we will never quite fully grasp or understand. But Jesus' prayer here is that we might be a united people. That we're a people that are bound together in Christian love. You know, the New Testament knows nothing of an isolated believer. You know those people as well. I love Jesus, but I hate church. It's not a thing. It's not a New Testament concept. This idea of going it alone. Yes, we understand that in certain parts of the world it becomes literally impossible to meet together. But they still find ways. They still do things. An isolated believer in the New Testament does not exist as a concept. To love Christ but not the church isn't a biblical concept. It's not something that Christ understood or Christ ever showed or demonstrated or said was acceptable. Why? Because we need each other. As Jesus went into the upper room, John 13, how did he greet them? What did he do? He got down on his knees and he washed their feet. He washed their feet and he taught them to minister to one another. He taught them to care for one another. Why do we need each other? Because we need Christ. And through that, through that common goal, we are able to support each other. We are able to help each other. We are able to serve each other. When some of us face difficulties, others help. Vice versa, we're a community. A community that is to replicate the fact that our triune God is even as we are one. I find it fascinating that in the hours that follow from this, These men, including Peter, the confident Peter, would discover just how weak they are and how much they needed each other. Even in that, even in the death of Christ, even in the struggles that came with that, the the lack of comprehension that the followers had, still they stayed together. The body is protection. 
the church working together as a united people of what God calls us to be. So Christ opens this. He opens in verses 11 and 12 with this prayer for protection. With this prayer that we would be united. The next thing Christ prays for, very simply, is he prays for joy. That we find in verses 13 and 14 and it reads this. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Christ will soon return to his father. The time is nearly come for him. Christ gave us his purpose in the last prayer. He gave us the purpose in the last verses of this prayer for the, for the fact that he was going. For the fact that his time had almost come. But now he gives us his purpose for coming into the world. Verse 14, I have given them your world. One of Christ's purposes was to bring us the world. The word of God is a gift to each and every one of us. The, the word being from the beginning to the end of the book, to the life and the actions and the deeds of Christ, to everything that the scriptures contain, the word was given as a gift to us that includes what goes before what comes after Christ the father gave the word to his son and the son gave this to his followers to his disciples to us and in turn inspired by the spirit today we have the word divine in origin this precious precious gift Christ came to us as the word of God. The very word of God that became flesh in John 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And in verse 4 in John 1 we read, In him was life. What does it tell us? It tells us that the word brings life. It tells us that Christ came into this world. That Christ hung on that tree for you and for me so that we might know life. Because out with that, there is no such life. There is no life. There is but death and darkness everywhere. There is out with, there is outside the life that Christ gives. In Christ, we can face a reality of a life that is free from the condemnation of sin. A life that has freedom from the consequences of my very own actions. It's absurd. <laughs> it's absolutely absurd. It makes no sense that Christ, fully God, came and hung on that tree that surrendered so much of his privilege, so much of his power as God to come into this earth to set us free. If that doesn't bring you joy, there is something wrong. That they may have my joy fulfilled in them. Christ had joy. Even in those moments, those moments where he was so close, where he knew what was to come, what did he have? Joy. Christ is the victor, the word, the word that documents this victor, the word that shows us the victory, the narrative of this victory throughout history that was won in Christ. How does it help us overcome the difficulties? How does it help us? How does it help us endure the hardships? Because it brings us joy. 
How often do we think of Christ as the man of sorrows? Yes, he was. But he was also a man of exceptional joy. The whole theme of this prayer is joy. The whole purpose of Christ is that we might know God and find joy within that. How ridiculous is it? How ridiculous is it that the sovereign God of all creation cares enough about you, cares enough about me, cares enough about our joy that he came into this world and they hung on that tree. Do you know, we must never picture Christ as this man with this long, sad face, as this depressed disposition as he walked around. Why? Because Christ was a man of joy that spent his life sharing that joy, his joy, with others. His joy wasn't rooted in anything but his enjoyment of the Father. He didn't depend on the outward but on the inward spiritual truth. And Christ wants us to have this joy. What a gift. What a gift to each of us. The word in this also gives us assurance. It brings joy and it brings assurance. And some of us, this is what we need to hear today. Just to read those famous verses again in Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depths nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ guarded the hearts of the disciples. He protected the hearts of the disciples. And God continues to do that to this day for us. Continue to walk with God. Continue to confess your sins. Continue to offer your body as a living sacrifice and we will not go wrong. I think it's remarkable that Christ uses this term, my joy, when he knows the appalling, excruciating things that he's about to face. There's no passing. There's no concept of circumstantial joy that Christ is referring to in this. But it's the full measure of his joy. It's the understanding that there is a joy that is greater than my day-to-day life. There is a joy that is greater than what I face. You know, nothing could quench the joy of Christ. Nothing. Not death, nor anything else could in any way quench the joy that Christ had. And that is his desire for the disciples. And that is his desire for us. And this joy gives us the ability to overcome It gives us the ability to see the victory, to live in the victory that Christ has won. Do you know, I've often, I'm thinking of a specific conversation that I had with somebody, and we we faced something very similar and dealt very differently with the situation. And it ended with him turning to me saying, Jonathan, you're just a lot stronger than me. And I laughed at him and I thought, my goodness. I didn't laugh at his face, but I laughed at myself and I was like, you're so wrong. You're so wrong, I'm the weakest of them all. There's no strength within me. And you know, that gave me the opportunity to share Christ. Because you know, if it was down to me to get through the difficulties of life, I wouldn't. 
If it was me to face the struggles and the temptations, I wouldn't. But in Christ, we find our strength. In Christ, we find that joy. And that joy is the joy that protects. That is the joy that unites. And it's the joy that should overcome us. Finally, we have the prayer for dedication. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into this world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. So that we may be sanctified in truth. To sanctify, to set apart, to declare holy. To declare that our God is good. God sets us apart. God declares us holy. Why? Because his word is truth. Why? Because Christ consecrated himself. Because Christ suffered. Because Christ sacrificed himself. This is a deepening of the words we find in verse 11. Keep them in your name. Keep them for protection in your name. But also set them apart from this world. With your truth. To be consecrated in truth means that our lives and our actions and our words are set apart from this world. Other distinctive marks in our lives that that show us as followers of Christ. I don't know how many times I've asked that question. I still ask myself daily. And I hope I always do. And I hope that I begin to get closer to that. But how do we as believers, where are the marks and the signs in our lives that we are followers of Christ? Why dedication? Because Christ is calling his disciples. And he's calling us to live a life that conforms to the identity of God. To live a life that is dedicated to the service of our God. John 15.3 reads, Already you are clean because of the words that I have spoken to you. On that day, on the day of your salvation, because of the word that was spoken, because of the word that was received, because of the working power of God within you, you were set apart for God. And as we grow, We should all be growing all the time. We should always be moving. Always moving forward with our faith. We experience this sanctification. This work of being sanctified. The act of growing in holiness. Not something that we can do ourselves. But something that God does within us. What does it mean? It means that we love sin less and we love God more. Those scales should always be tipping. They should always be tipping. That the love of sin goes down and the love of God goes up. It means we want to serve him, that we want to bless others as Christ commands us to. And all of this, all of this comes through his words. The word is truth, the son is truth, the spirit is truth. We need all three. We need to understand Christ, we need to read the word, we need to experience the work of the spirit if we are to grow in holiness. I love the phrase that Christ uses in here. Your word is truth. The authority of the scriptures. How important are they? 
How important is the book? How important is the book that we gather around daily, weekly, when we gather together? I think a good place to start in that question is what does Jesus say? Best man to ask. What does he say? What does he tell us about the word? Surely it must be complex. Surely it must be difficult if there's so much debate over the authority of the word. Surely it's complex and we need to tear it apart and read things into the text. No, of course we don't. Your word is truth. Truth, that is in accordance with fact, it translates. It translates as your word is divine reality. Divine reality in being truth. The word of God is truth. It is the divine reality of our God. It is the divine reality of what our God has for us. And if Christ tells us that the word of God is divine reality, if he tells us that it is truth, what does it mean? It means that it is truth. Who are we? Who are we to doubt that? Who are we to doubt the power of the word? To be transformed by the word means we jump into the word. And so clearly that is Christ's desire for us. You know, I have the privilege of engaging with so many young people in this church. And do you know, I love playing games and I love uh, eating pizza and I love playing laser tag like we did last night. And all of that stuff's really, really good fun. And it's great to get them together and to grow in relationships with each other. But the absolute highlight of my job is watching the word of God transform life. Because I don't have to do anything. It's just empowering to open. Empowering to explore. And you know what? There is nothing more beautiful in this world than watching somebody's life be transformed by Christ. To look from point one to point two and see the transforming work of Christ in that person's life. What a privilege it is. What a privilege it is to witness. You'll hear some of those testimonies um, at our baptismal service on the 2nd of December. Then again, you will hear stories of our young people that's lives have been radically transformed by Christ. Because the word transforms. Nothing else transforms but Christ. And it tells us that the word is at work. I count myself so privileged to witness it. I count myself so privileged to witness the Lord at work. You know, programs are great. It's great to have a busy church. It's great to have things going on. But everything must have a purpose. Everything must have a purpose of pointing to Christ, of meeting people where they're at on their journey. Whether it's absolutely nowhere, whether it's the first time in this building, whatever it is, our job is to let Christ work. That's it. The word is truth. I don't need to stand here and I don't need to tell you to read your Bibles more. I don't need to tell you to spend less time doing stuff and more time with God. But I will say that Christ viewed the word as truth. As fact. As divine reality. If that is what Jesus Christ views the word as, that is what we should view his word as. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Christ took on flesh. The word became flesh. The word is truth. Christ is truth. 
So I have been sent into the world. You see, it follows here. Christ has been sent and he sends. There's a flow to this. That Christ gets it, that Christ does it, that Christ is the example of sending the sent. We are sent, why? Because Christ was sent. We don't serve a God that, that doesn't understand us. We don't serve this obsolete and abstract force that is far away but we serve the God that came to earth and made himself known that understands every part of our inner being that understands every bit of the struggle and the difficulty that we face how awesome is that how awesome is it that our God came to this earth verse 19 and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth first bit of that for their sake I consecrate myself the word consecrate here referring to the acts of sacrifice the suffering of the unimaginable pain that we follow so that you and I might know freedom why so that we might be sanctified in the truth so that we might know God it's just incredible isn't it that Christ came into the world for our sake he did the suffering not us so that we might know him do you know we are protected by the blood of the Lamb. we are protected by the cross of Christ by the spirit that lives and works within us live in that live with that knowing that you are secure in the hands of God let's not live a life of fear but let's live a life of freedom and a life of obedience let's know joy the only permanent the only ever growing joy that there is in Jesus Christ that he had that he has given to us and let us stand in the truth let us stand in what is right let's stand on the side of God let's stand on the side of God that transforms lives there's nowhere I'd rather be than in the presence of the God that is in the business of transforming lives. Doesn't it stir you? Doesn't it make you want to know more, want to do more, want to understand more and see more? Christ came into this world, not for his own gain, but for ours. How often I get told religion is not for me. Christianity is just a boring set of rules. I'll pass. But you know, those rules, the commands of our king and our obedience and joy to our king and our sovereign God. And you know what? Religion is not for me either. But my relationship and my obedience to Christ most definitely, definitely is. Let's pray. Lord God, what privilege it is. What privilege it is to gather around your word, to gather around the word that is truth. To learn of the son that took on flesh, not for his gain, but for ours. 
Lord, we can't fathom the, the lengths that you went to for us. But we are so thankful that you did. Lord, we thank you that to this day across this world, you are transforming lives in such radical, radical ways. Lord, will we never underestimate your power? Will we never think that there are things that you cannot do? How easy it is to think that in our daily lives. How easy it is to limit you. Lord, will we never limit you? Lord, will we let your word speak in our lives and through our lives to those that we encounter, to those that we interact with? Lord God, we love you. Lord, would you grow your joy in each and every one of us? Lord, would you show us? We come as children. We come as babies, Lord, helpless. Helpless before the throne. Helpless to the king. To the king that has adopted us, that has elected us, that has taken us in. Lord God, you are incredible. Amen.